0: I'm so excited. It's Palm Sunday. Welcome to Passion Week. And uh, it's funny, I was preparing for this week and I realized something. I'm going to be a little transparent with you guys. I have never preached a true Palm Sunday message in my life when uh, when we planted the church down in Oregon. So for 15 years, I was a, a youth pastor and then associate and then executive pastor, filled a lot of roles and uh, never preached on a Palm Sunday. And then we would uh, do usually Good Friday messages on Palm Sunday because Good Friday messages, you talk about the cross and it's easy and fun to preach about the cross and those stories are phenomenal. But if I'm just really honest I realized something this week as I prepared. I don't have kind of a, a, an ang- I don't know if I even know what I think about Palm Sunday. And I started sitting down and studying, and I started asking questions like, was Palm Sunday necessary? Was it part of the plan, or did it just kind of break out? What is the significance of palms? Why do we call it Palm Sunday? Is it because it was hard to say triumphal entry? And we wanted kids to remember, and I, I'm not sure. And so I started asking some questions and wondering, hey, is this part of the plan? What in the world is God doing here? And so this morning, I've titled the message at just the right time, because I want us to see this incredible picture. So I had to deep dive this week, and I was studying history, and I was I was reading and learning things, and, and uh, so I am really full, and if I just keep going and going and going, just go with me, okay? And if you gotta get up and leave, just get up and leave. If the next service comes in and they're home, for parking spots, just go ahead and uh, and take off. No, I'm teasing, I won't do that to you. Because there is a plan, and I don't know about you, but I get frustrated when there's no plan. Where are my people who get frustrated when there's no plan? Wave at me, yeah, right? Some of you are already tense as I described a fictitious service that isn't gonna happen that sounded like there was no plan. Where are my people who don't care if there's ever a plan? They're just free and happy-go-lucky, and yeah, you guys are strange, but that's awesome. I'm glad you uh, uh, exist, you just can never be in charge of anything. <laughs> And so, (laughs) because we need a plan. I get frustrated when there is no plan. I started thinking about some of the times that I experienced no plan and it led me to incredible frustration. One of the first weddings I ever performed. Now, here's the thing. When you've done youth ministry for about 15 years, you end up doing a lot of weddings, a lot of weddings. And I remember doing a wedding for a young couple and getting there. And the moment I got there, they looked at me and said, okay, so what do we do? Now it's a rehearsal, so at least they plan that far. But I looked at them and I said, "What are you talking about? This is your wedding. What do you want to do?" <laughs> and they looked at me, they like, "Don't you tell us what to do?" And I said, "Listen, everything that happens until you get to the front, that's on you. The moment you're standing in front of me, I'll take over from there. and then once you leave being in front of me, I'm not in charge of you anymore. It's your day!" And they started looking at me horrified. Well, what about music? And what about, you see, there was no plan. So I said, okay, who's the bossiest family member? And they both pointed to the same person. And I said, come over here. You're in charge, right? (laughs) And we had to set up a plan. But it's frustrating when you show up and there's no plan. I remember being in a work situation where we had created a new position, And this new position had all these different objectives, but essentially at the end of the day, it had two bosses. Now, I don't know if you've ever felt like you've had two bosses before. It can be frustrating to walk into a room and someone say, this is what I need, and then immediately bump into someone else and they say, no, this is what you need to be doing. And pretty soon you start realizing there's no plan here. Everybody thinks they're in charge, which means nobody's in charge. It can be maddening when there's no plan. Maybe you've been in a family situation. You're doing a family trip and a family outing, and you get to a place, and you're excited because you're thinking, hey, we're in a new place, and we're going to see new things, and we're going to do new things. And someone is essentially supposed to be in charge, and they go, so what do you want to do? And you're like, I don't know. What do you want to do? And pretty soon you're looking around going, we've got to this place, but there's no plan. And it can get frustrating. If you have littles, whoo, It can get hot really quickly in those conversations. I've helped someone move, shown up at their house with some support, walked in, not even boxes yet. Don't even have boxes yet. And they looked at me and said, Well, what's the plan? The plan is it's your house, it's your stuff. I can lift heavy things. That's all I'm good for at this point, right? This was a while ago. Now I can't even do that. Now I can just direct some traffic. But there's something about when you show up and there's no plan. And so as I began to to look through the story of Palm Sunday, I found myself searching for God's plan in all of it. I found myself asking questions. God, do you really have a plan? And I think sometimes those of us that are following Jesus to have a relationship with God. We ask that question just about our lives. God, is there really a plan here? Do you really have something for me? Is this building towards some crescendo, some moment, some thing because right now I don't really see the plan. And we can find ourselves incredibly frustrated, wondering, God, do you really have a plan? So if you have your Bibles, we're going to jump in and see, hopefully today, you get an incredible picture of the way that God plans. And I'm hoping today, maybe if you haven't been to church too much lately, you've been kind of wondering, God, I'm not sure what you're, what you're all about. I'm hoping that today will be one of those days where you begin to get an accurate picture of who God is from his word. And I'm going to be in John chapter 12, and then I'm going to jump over to Psalm 118. And if you're really ambitious, you can actually follow me from there all the way over to Nehemiah chapter 2. And some of you are like, what is the plan, Pastor Mike? That's three passages. Usually you do one passage, and it takes forever. Don't worry. We're going to figure this whole thing out. What's fascinating, as you're turning over to John chapter 12, is John chapter 12, the book of John has 21 chapters. And John chapter 12 begins with the last week of Jesus's life. That means for the next almost half of the book of John, it's all about the last seven days of Jesus's earthly ministry. Think about that for a second. 33 years of material, half of what is written in the book of John is from the last week of his life. The more I thought about that, the more important the Passion Week became to me. The more I realized how important some of those things were. And so I started asking some questions. Now I'm gonna, I'm gonna have questions today that I don't fully have all the answers for, but I'm gonna ask the questions with you and we're gonna just begin to journey through some of these things. So one of the questions I asked was, I wonder when John started writing things down. Because he's walking with Jesus for three years and half of his account is from the last week of his life. So probably after the cross and the resurrection, there became this intentionality to say, hey, we better jot some of these things down so that I get them accurate. And the stuff he remembered the most, come on now, happened that week. Now, we know when his letter fully came together, but when did he start writing every, all of those elements down? Maybe he jotted some things down. How, how many of you are really good journalers? I'm not a really good journaler. I like to journal, but there's usually gaps Everything I write down is accurate, but there's some gaps, right? And that's why it's so important that we have four accounts because it fills in some of the gaps. It's kind of like when a, when a news crew goes out to a scene and they start interviewing different eyewitnesses, they get different pieces of the story but if you put all of those pieces of the story together, you get one whole cohesive story. And the gospel accounts work a lot that way. As a matter of fact, all four of the gospel accounts spend a lot of time talking about the last week of Jesus's life. And some of them have different uh, pieces of the story. And all of the stories are accurate and true and paint one story. But we're gonna focus in John. I'm actually gonna jump us over to Luke for just a minute, but you don't have to follow me there. And, uh, but we're gonna focus on this last week. Of Jesus's life so John's writing now if you went back one page you'd see in John chapter 11 some pretty important things happen there was a guy that you've probably heard of if you've been alive for any more than maybe 10 years and his name was Lazarus and Lazarus was incredibly significant you think Lazarus is popular today I want you to understand Lazarus was a popular man People knew Lazarus. I'm gonna show you through the text today. There was a large crowd that followed Jesus primarily because of this incident with Lazarus. This incident with Lazarus was pretty powerful and pretty impactful. I don't know about you, but I've never gotten to see someone get raised from the dead after a few days. So in John chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. You have some of the greatest uh, 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 picture and verbiage in all of scripture. Jesus shows up. He's like, open the tomb. We're going to let him out. And uh, Martha's like, he stinketh. And you know, he's been in there for a few days. You don't want to smell this. But Lazarus comes forth and he comes out. And he's not a zombie. He's human, fully healed. It's pretty amazing. He's not like brains. Some of you, I'm just waking you up, come on. Lazarus is raised from the dead and you have this incredible picture at the end of John chapter 11, you have the the high priest Caiaphas plotting with the other religious leaders, kind of the Democrats and the Republicans of that time at the Sanhedrin saying, if this guy's raising the dead, he's gonna be a problem for all of us. Everyone's gonna follow him. We have to kill this guy. After that, we pick up in John chapter 12. Jesus has been on the move between John 11 and 12, but it says six days, verse one, before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. In case you forgot that from chapter 11. So he shows up. I think it's um, actually Matthew's account that tells us, or maybe it was Mark, that he was at the home of Simon the leper, another person who had been healed by Jesus. So if you're healing people from leprosy and raising them from the dead, momentum is starting to build towards something here, okay? People are getting excited. We're seeing some incredible miracles happen. I want you to catch it six days before the Passover. The dates are going to be incredibly important today. Some of you who are not detail-oriented are going to get frustrated with me. I'm going to put some stuff on the screen, but I want you to catch this. It's six days before the Passover. He shows up at a house. Verse two, it says, here a dinner was given in Jesus's honor. It's a banquet. It says, Martha served, and I love this, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table. Lazarus is like, bro, so good to be alive and eating food and hanging out with you. And Martha's like, let me get you some more of this and let me get you some more of this, right? She's doing her Martha thing. I just love this picture. If Jesus ever raises you from the dead, and then he comes back around another time. You should cook dinner. You should throw up, have a dinner party. You should bring him over. You should hang out with him. You should be thrilled that he's there. And when he's there, you should probably chill at the table with him and be like, Jesus. And he'd be like, yeah. I'd be like, thanks. He's like, yeah. Like they're just having a moment, right? It's awesome. They're chilling out at the table. I love this picture. It's literal Lazarus. It's not zombie Lazarus. It's Lazarus. He's there at the table. He's been dead for a few days. Now he's eating food, hanging out with Jesus. Martha's cooking. Verse three, then Mary, we believe this to be sister Lazarus, sister Mary's Mary. Mary, Martha, that Mary. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, which was an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Mary comes in and does this incredible picture of just worship. And she takes this incredibly valuable thing and she worships Jesus. It's an act of gratefulness. It is lavish. Look what happens. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Judas is like, no. And he says, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Let that sink in for a second. Sometimes we run through the scripture and we miss. We just go, okay, valuable. I want you to think about a year's wages. Verse six, he didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. So many things happening here. A year's wages. In the U.S. right now, the national average for a year's wages for a full-time employee is almost $45,000 a year. So I want you to imagine that you have a $45,000 perishable item. Now, I'm not like any, I I don't know about like wines or champagnes. I can't imagine a perfume that smells that, that costs that much nowadays. But maybe an old bottle of something. It's not my deal. But she walks in and this thing's worth 45 Gs. She cracks it open. She pours it on his feet and anoints his feet. She washes his feet with her hair. And Judas just can't handle it. He's like, no, 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 no. Why this waste? And the scripture gives us, John gives us this incredible picture of Judas being unreliable, unsafe with the money, which is a very powerful statement to make. Because in that time, walking with a rabbi like Jesus and being in charge of the resources and finances, you would have had to have been someone who was thought to have been of impeccable character. John is saying he's had us all snowed. None of us understood they never would have let him that close to Jesus or especially the finances if they knew this beforehand. He's saying he had all of us snowed and he got indignant at what happened here. And we know that this was going to eventually push him over the top and turn his heart toward away from Jesus. And he says, why wasn't this money given to the poor? (laughs) But he wasn't concerned for the poor. I was reading this story, and I was thinking about the context, and I was thinking, you know what? This is Mary, sister of Lazarus. I've always looked at this extravagant worship as something that it is, which is extravagant. But I thought, you know what? If you raise my family member from the dead, I don't know if there's a level of extravagance that I couldn't go to. I don't know if there's something that I would think, no, that's too much, Right, that's too far. I can't worship you that greatly. I can't go that far. God, that's just too costly of a worship act. You raised someone from the dead. And as I said those words to myself, I thought, God, you've raised me to life. Why is there some worship that's too costly? Why is there some things that you might ask of me? And I say, God, that's too much. I'll go this far, but not further. That, that, that's a waste. I could do something else with that. I could have a plan for that. I could do so much good with it. You can't ask that of me, Lord. Whoo! I'll just let you feel that out for a minute, church. When I realize that he saved us all, I'm not sure there's any worship that's too extravagant. I'm just humbled. Jesus' response, verse seven, hey, leave her alone. I added the A. I think he said it with that tone. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You'll always have the poor among you, but you won't always have me. What is he saying? Don't let anything stop you from worshiping, especially someone throwing you a guilt trip about how you worship. Don't let anyone stop you from worshiping just because someone says, this ain't how we do that. This is too expensive. This is too much. That's what he's saying. Don't listen to the haters. He's like, block. Verse 9. Listen to this. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Lazarus was there. And came not only because of him being Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. A large crowd is forming, not just to see Jesus. Who do they want to see? Lazarus. Why? Because many of these people were probably at Lazarus's funeral. And I don't know about you, But if I just read the newspaper and it says, Lazarus was raised from the dead, and I'm like, I was at the funeral. I saw his body. I watched him wrap him up. I saw him shove him into the tomb. I know they rolled a stone in front of it. I know they locked that boy in the tomb. He was dead. Mary was wailing. Martha was, you know, cutting up hors d'oeuvres and crying over onions or something, right? Like, it was a funeral service. I was there. And Lazarus is now out of the tomb, Jesus, that's cool and all, but I want to see Lazarus. I want to smell him, right? See if he stinketh. I got to lay eyes and make sure it's not just someone who looks like Lazarus, that this ain't a scheme. I want to know what's going on. And a large crowd. Why? Lazarus is popular. People knew Lazarus. People had relationship with him. They found out Lazarus was there, and they came not only because of him, but to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. I want you to imagine, let's put this in our context. Let's say someone very significant, financially wealthy, from like Tacoma, that we all kind of knew about, died. There was a big funeral, and you read about it in the paper. Maybe you went and you saw it. A few days later, somebody comes through, a holy man, a person of faith, and that guy that you saw die gets raised from the dead. You wanna see them with your own eyes. So the chief priest and the, the chief priest made plans. Look at this verse 10. This blows me away. So the chief priest made plans to kill Lazarus as well. I gotta tell you, I've read this hundreds of times without catching that they decided they were gonna kill Lazarus too. I was emotional this past week or so, like, what happened to Lazarus? Did they get him? because we know how it goes for Jesus. They're pretty good at these political assassinations, at false charges, at bringing people up. I'm looking through the scripture. We don't know what happens to Lazarus from the scripture. I'm looking through church history. We don't know for sure. There's some some Catholic tradition that says he ended up in France, but we don't really know what happened to Lazarus. I wanted a shirt like hashtag save Lazarus. Like I was concerned about Lazarus all week. What happened to Lazarus? They made a plan to kill him too. They're all having a bad week. Verse 11, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. Verse 12, the story shifts to the next day. Remember I told you six days before Passover was gonna be important. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Now you gotta catch this. There's a feast, not just a dinner. Lazarus has been raised from the dead. Martha's cooking. Crowds are showing up. They wanna see what's going on here. He's at Simon the leper's house, who apparently is very wealthy, and he's no longer Simon the leper. He's just Simon. The story of Jesus is starting to explode. There are crowds Coming. And they find out that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Why? Well, because the Passover is coming. And in that culture, come on, we've talked about this a couple times. There were certain festivals where, if you were in proximity, you went to the main town, to Jerusalem, for the Passover, for. uh, what is it, the Feast of Weeks, and for whatever the third one is, that I can't remember right now. There are three times that they would go, and if you could, but Passover was the big one. As a matter of fact, part of the Passover Seder, the dinner that they have at Passover, uh, even to this day in Jewish traditions, one of the things that they say at the end, and uh, and they drink some wine as they say, they say, next year in Jerusalem, and they hope for the ability to be in Jerusalem for the Passover, even if you're not In Jerusalem, as you take the Passover, it's culturally part of their lifestyle to be. In Jerusalem for the Passover, it's a really big deal. And so the next day, the great crowd heard that he's on his way to Jerusalem. Now, I'm going to jump over to Luke chapter 19 because uh, John cuts some of the story out. Um, You don't have to go there. I'm just going to, I'm going to just tell you a paraphrase what's going on. In Luke's account, it says he went on ahead over, uh, verse 28, up to Jerusalem. And then as he approached Jerusalem, he stopped on the Mount of Olives now, this is significant because the Mount of Olives, it's about 2,800 feet high. It's an elevated position next to an elevated city, and it looks out, and you kind of got to go down to the valley and then come back up to the city. He stops on the Mount of Olives. He's coming from Bethany. He shows up just outside of the city. He'd be visible over there. You can see, when, we went to, uh, when I went to Israel from the Mount of Olives, you have a good picture, like a selfie with the city in the background. It's just right there. So you can see the city from there. He gets to the Mount of Olives and there's this interaction, maybe you've heard this before, uh, that he has with his disciples. And and essentially he says, listen, I want you to go into town and I want you to get me a donkey. It's gonna be a a, a donkey that no one's ever ridden before. It's gonna be a mama donkey and it's gonna be a colt. And I want you to go get me the donkey and you're gonna say, if anyone gives you a hard time about taking the donkey and bringing it to me, just say the Lord needs it. Now, I don't know if that would work for you, if someone just showed up at where you work or where you live and was like, toss me the keys to your car. And you're like, why? And they said, well, the Lord needs it. I'm not sure how you would respond to that, but this works for the disciples. They show up. And, and, and Luke tells us like, someone's like, why are you untying my donkey? And he's like, the Lord needs it. And they're like, Cool. And they high five and he takes the donkey, right? And so the the donkey comes back over across to the Mount of Olives. They're up on the Mount of Olives and then Jesus hops on the donkey. As he starts uh, going down the Mount of Olives and into the city... It says in, uh, in the Luke account that they brought, the donkey they brought to Jesus, that people began to throw their cloaks on the donkey and they put Jesus on it. And then it says, as they went along, people spread their cloaks in front of the donkey on the road. It's a crazy story. I don't know about you, but I'm not sure I'm going to take my jacket and throw it on the ground in front of a donkey, no matter who's riding it. So again, I have all these questions, I'm reading, I'm like, why would anyone do that? What's the significance of doing that? And if you go, um, I think it's 2 Kings chapter nine, the story of Jehu becoming king, it's, it's this incredible picture of his anointing of being king and the, they wave their cloaks and they throw their cloaks before him. It's a picture of, of, of recognizing his authority as a king. But I think there's something else here. I, I, I heard one pastor say this and I loved it. Uh, last year, I had, I had this incredible opportunity to go to opening day, baseball for the Mariners, right? And uh, it was pretty awesome. I got a free ticket. It was a gift. It was a blessing. I got to bring a friend. And uh, I caught a foul ball on opening day. It was amazing, right? Ball went flying up in the air. And uh, everybody swarmed around me. And then it was coming down really fast. And everybody ran away. And I was all by myself. And I caught it. And I was like, a, oh, I was like awesome. I put it in my pocket like no big deal. And then I tried to go somewhere else and cry because my hand hurts so bad. But I manned up and I caught it. It was amazing. Uh, but here's the thing. I always now have this memento of opening day, 2017. It's awesome. It's a ball that was actually hit by a player in a game. It's got dirt on it. It's, it, it's from there. And I think this is what's happening to some regard is here comes Jesus there are crowds that have surrounded him, crowds that are following from Lazarus. He's moving towards the city. He's riding on this donkey, on this mule. And I think people are throwing down their, their, their coats because this is gonna be the coat that got walked on by the donkey that had Jesus. See the hoof print? See the dirt? I don't know. I'm just painting a picture for you. Verse 13 of John picks up the story. It says, they took palm branches And they went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the, listen to this, king of Israel. This is Palm Sunday. I have so many questions. Where do these branches come from? Were there palms just everywhere? Was it four guys waving palms that had branches? Was the whole crowd carrying palm branches? What is the story with the palm branches? Matthew tells us that some of them were just ripped off of trees in the moment, and they were throwing palm branches on the branches on the ground along with the cloaks for him to walk on, almost like paving a royal red carpet. But there's something else that's pretty incredible about this. You got to remember, I told you the date was important. It's Nissan Ten. It's. Five days now before the Passover. Nissan is a month, in case you're wondering, not the car. You're like, I don't have a Nissan 10. I have an Altima. (laughs) Nissan 10, it's the month, the date. And this is a very significant day working its way towards Passover. Why? Because this is the day that the families would choose the sacrificial lamb for their Passover meal in four days. So families everywhere are choosing their Passover lamb. They're selecting their Passover lamb. And when we get to Psalm 118, I'm going to show you this incredible picture. They would take palm branches, and their palm branches had a significant uh, 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 celebratory meeting. Ever since the Maccabean revolts, the palm branches were like a military celebration of freedom. It was a way they celebrated freedom. But they also used those palm branches, those very palm branches, that they waved as victory as part of the offering with the Lamb, they literally would bind the offering with palm branches. They would tie the lamb all the way up to the up to the head with their palm branches that they would have. And this time of year, it wasn't good palm branch season in Jerusalem. So actually, they would bring in palm branches, they would import them in from outlying towns where they would be healthier and stronger. And so there would probably be vendors the same way. You got to think, this is a big celebration. It's like the fourth of July, and these are sparklers. They're celebrating. There's crowds there. People would be at the gates, waving their palm branches, celebrating the Passover. It was part of their tradition, their history. It's what's going on already. And they're singing this song, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the word Hosanna is an incredible word. It literally means save us. It's this way, they've been overcome by Rome, Rome's in control, but they would, on the Passover celebration, wave these palm branches around like a celebratory uh, 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 reaction to request for freedom. They would cry out to God, save us. And in walks Jesus on this lamb, not on this lamb, on this donkey. And I was thinking about Jesus being on the donkey, and I thought, what's so significant about that? Verse 14 says, Jesus found a young donkey and as he sat upon it, as it was written, do not be afraid. Verse 15, O daughter of Zion, see your king is coming seated on a colt. This is a prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It's a picture of the, uh, the coming Messiah riding on a colt. Jesus riding on this donkey and these palm branches being waved is significant for a few reasons. Number one, it fulfilled a prophecy that Zechariah wrote about 560 years earlier, but we're gonna to get to some dates in a minute. The donkey's significant. Why is the donkey significant? Because kings only rode on donkeys when they were coming to make peace. Kings did not ride on donkeys to go to war. That's an ineffective war animal. When they're going to war, they ride on horses. Jesus, if you read Revelation, prefers big white horses when he's going to war. But in this moment, he's coming to town and they're screaming out, save us, save us. They're going through their, their, they're singing the Psalm 118. They're going through the motions of their Passover celebration. Here comes this large crowd. Why is the crowd so large? Because of Lazarus, because of the party that's been going on. They're moving towards the city. The city is swelling with people at the time of uh, of this kind of moment in history, maybe not this year. uh, The historian Josephus tells us that Jerusalem would swell to about two and a half million people. Normally there was like 80,000. Imagine this town has like 90,000 in Puyallup, swelling to two and a half million. There's people everywhere, and this giant crowd within the crowd is coming down from the Mount of Olives. They can see him, and he's on a colt, and people are throwing their cloaks in front of him, and they're waving palm branches, and he shows up at the city, and John tells us that that people had kind of gone ahead because of what happened to Lazarus, and they're saying, this is the Jesus. He's the one raising people from the dead. They're singing their song, Hosanna, Hosanna. They say, Jesus. They're like, yes, Hosanna. That's the one. Maybe he's the one coming to save us, but he's on a donkey now a horse they want a military king and he's saying i'm coming to bring peace he comes in on a donkey the white horse he saves for revelation that's when it's rear end kicking time luke tells us that as he approached jerusalem so he's coming down the hill and he gets to the city he sees the city and it says he wept over it And he said something. He said, if you, even you, had known this day, what would bring you peace? He said, if you, oh city, oh people of God, if you had only known that this day, remember I told you the day is important. It's the 10th of Nisan, AD 33. It's the day they choose the Passover lamb. And if he said, and Jesus says, if you had just been paying attention to the significance of this day, and he weeps, he says, you've missed the day. Verse 43, he says, now the days will come when your enemies will build an embankment against you and circle you and hem you on, on every side. They'll dash you to the ground and your children within your walls and you won't leave one stone on another. Why? Because you didn't recognize the time of God's coming to you. That's Luke's account of the same thing. He weeps, Jesus does, as he's approaching the city and he sees it. And he says, you guys missed the day. Verse 16 of John says this. I like that John's so honest, verse 16, he goes, at first his disciples, they didn't understand all of this. I gotta tell you, as a disciple, I didn't understand all of this. I had to read it a couple times. Thanks, John, for being transparent that even being there wasn't enough to understand all of it at first. There's some crazy significant things happening and it was only after Jesus was glorified that they realized these things had been written about him and these things that had been done to him. What? Seated on a donkey. Palm branches waved. Hosanna in the highest being sung on this particular day. See, Palm Sunday starting to take some significance. So let me tell you a little bit about how we got to this day, AD 33, Nissan 10. I'm going to give you a little timeline. I'm going to take you through history real quickly here of the scriptures because there's some pretty incredible pictures I want you to see of what God is doing throughout time. See, I opened the conversation by talking about hoping that God had a plan. And I don't know about you, but I always hope that God has a plan. I always hope that the things I'm responding to and the Holy Spirit and and the word of God and trying to live for God is part of some plan that God knows what's happening because oftentimes I don't know what's going on. So I wanna paint for you this picture that we see woven through history. Now Jesus, uh, up to 300 prophetic things he fulfilled in his life out of the Old Testament, is just incredible. He actually shared some prophecies that came true. He prophesied to, uh, 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 to Peter. He's like, you're gonna deny me, right? He told Judas, Judas you're gonna betray me, right? He, 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 was, he was living in the now and the future in the past. He had all that down. Time wasn't an issue for him. But I want you to see this incredible picture of this story of God's plan coming through time. And I wanna give you this first date, 1528 B.C., Pastor Mike, that's a long time ago. BC, 1528 BC would take you to Exodus chapter 12. What's happening in Exodus chapter 12 is the original Passover. There's this awesome moment, right? Moses is like, let my people go. You've seen probably Charlton Heston doing that. Let my people go. And God gives this picture that an angel of death is gonna come. The firstborn are all gonna be slaughtered, but the protected ones are gonna be protected by the blood of the lamb. And God starts revealing this incredible picture of the blood of the lamb having power and authority to turn death away. And so 1528 BC, Exodus chapter 12 happens. These people have known about this for a long, long time. Then we move forward in time to potentially two dates. If you have your Bibles and you're you're there, you can jump over to Psalm 118. Some people believe that Psalm 118 was written originally by Moses. We're not completely sure, but it's pretty safe to say throughout history that David composed it and its current form into a song. OK, he, David was the guy, you know, hanging out in the in the hills with the uh, sheep playing his lyre. he was the musician of scripture. And so most likely, as we know, Psalm 118 right now, it wasn't 1520 ish B.C., but it was right around 1000 B.C. Right around 1,000 BC, David takes this psalm, whether he wrote it originally or not, whether he got the source material from Moses, he crafts it. And if you're in Psalm 118, verse 24, I'm gonna gonna give you a couple of things here because they tie into the Passover celebration. And they tie into this picture of believing that a Messiah is going to come who's going to actually be the Lamb of God. And Psalm 118, verse 24, is a verse that many of you have seen in song if you grew up in church, and it goes a little something like this. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. How many of you have seen that or heard that somewhere, right? How many of you in kids' church had a little, come on, a little, uh, this is the day, this is the day that the Lord has Right. And we sing that and we sing it kind of referencing every day. Right? Like today is the day. What's today? Right? Today, Sunday, the 25th, this is the day. Right? And we'll sing it, right? And tomorrow, if it popped on the radio, you wouldn't change it. You turn it up. Come on now, you'd be feeling it. Your head would start moving. You'd be like, this is the day. And it's the 26th. And you'd be like, that's awesome. And if it was on the radio the next day, you'd probably turn it off by then. But you might hear it again and you'd be like, this is the day, right? And you would wake up every day going, This is the day. And you'd be right. Except for that's not what the song the psalm is about. It's not about every day is the day that the Lord has made. It's actually pointing to a very specific day that the Lord has made. It's talking about the day when the Messiah is going to come and liberate Israel and free the people of God and restore them back to God and bring freedom to them. And David is singing prophetically through the future about a day that is coming when the Lord, come on, who has made it, and they get to celebrate and be glad in it. Verse 25, the next line of the song says, O oh Lord, save us. O oh Lord, grant us success. Now that word save us in Hebrew is a word you recognize, Hosanna. So David says, this is the day. Uh, He's feeling it. He's got his lyre out. He's playing. And his next word is, Hosanna. Hosanna, Lord, save us. Grant us success. Is that starting to sound a little familiar to the song they were singing? They're not singing every day as the Lord has made. They're saying, this is the day when the Savior comes. Oh, Lord, save us. Grant us success. How do we know? Because verse 26 says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. They're talking about the Messiah coming in the name of the Lord for the house of the Lord. And then look at verse 27. This is amazing. The Lord is God and has made his light to shine upon us. Now this is hard language, but you got to understand with bows in hand. Right? Right? With bows in hand, join in the festal, which is a weird word, to say festival, party, celebration, the procession, and then up to the horns of the altar means they're going to use those bows to tie off the altar, the lamb at the altar. This is Psalm 118. This is what they sing every Passover. This was 1,000 B.C. It's now 33 A.D., for a thousand years at least, they have been celebrating Passover every year in the month of Nissan. around Nissan 10, they select a Passover lamb and they start singing this song. This is like every, I don't know, New Year's, you bust out, I'm proud to be an American, like right? Not New Year's, wait, that's 4th of July, right? What's the New Year's song? Should all the acquaintance be forgotten, right? It's their song, it's their jam for Passover for a thousand years. They've been singing this. David kicks off this incredible worship song that's about Passover. Now let's put the timeline back up. The next significant date and, and God's incredible plan happens about, what is it, 530 B.C., and in 530 BC, Daniel, it's chapter 9 of Daniel, and Daniel gets a prophetic word from God. He, he, he gets a picture. If you're with us for the Daniel fast, I referenced this passage. He gets a picture that the people of God are gonna get displaced again, then they're not gonna be in control of their land, and they're gonna need saving again. And in the Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. The messenger of God tells Daniel, Know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore, oh, this is so good, guys. The decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. Okay? Thanks, Daniel. Here's what I want you to catch Daniel's getting a message from the Lord. And the Lord is saying, There's an anointed one coming. And there's a countdown once he's on the way. You're going to know to start the countdown when the decree is made to go back and rebuild the land, right? So the moment that decree happens, a countdown happens. But this is a confusing countdown. What's seven sevens and 62 sevens? So I'm going to help us do some math because I'm a Bible college grad and I didn't take math in college. Goes a little something like this, seven sevens, right? Seven times seven is how much? 49, 49. amazing, right? So he goes, there's seven sevens. He goes, and then there's 62 more sevens. 62 times seven, whoo, 434. Who is my math whiz over there? That was amazing. Someone nailed that. That or they had their phone out, right? So, So 434 plus 49 looks like what? So 49 days, 49 was one of the numbers and then 434 was the other number and it gave us 483, 483 is a big number now. So seven sevens plus 62 sevens is 483. Now those sevens are years, okay? So seven years times seven years and then 62 years times seven years and 483 years from a certain moment in time when a decree happens that you're gonna rebuild Jerusalem. There's gonna be a decree And then there's going to be 483 years. Does that make sense? Are you with me? If I lost you because of math, I'm sorry. Come back now. Let's go back to the timeline. So we know another fixed date. We know 33 AD in Nisan 10 is when John is writing John chapter 12. Right? John is writing on 33 AD, Nisan 10, Jesus... The anointed one is riding on a donkey into town. They're singing, Hosanna to the king. He's not telling them to be quiet. This is fascinating. If you look through the scriptures, every time someone tries to make Jesus king, you know what he says? Now's not the time. Don't tell anybody. There's all these times in scriptures he heals somebody. He's like, take up your mat and walk. Don't tell anybody who did this. They surround him and they want to make him king and he slips through the crowd. Every time, he keeps saying, now's not the time. Now's not the time. Now's not the time. I I know you want me to be king, but now's not the time. I have an appointed time. Let's go back to math one more time, because this is going to be important. 483 years is what we're up to, right? 483 years. you got to understand something, though. 483 years are not 365-day years like our calendar. We use the sun. They use the moon. So they do 360-day years. That's an important nuance of math that you're just gonna have to follow with me on scripture because we do 365 and a third technically because we just drop off every other February 29th or whatever. I don't know what we're doing. All I know is that 483 years times 360 days in a year gives us a crazy big number. Now some of you are really lost. 173,000 eight hundred and eighty days. But we also know that Nissan 10 AD 33 is when it happens. So let's look at our timeline again. And we know that this space between whatever happens when the decree happens is 173,880 days. But we know Nissan 10 AD 33. So we can do math and we can go back in time. 173,880 days. Okay? You go back in time that far and you end up on a specific day, 444 BC, Nisan 1, right? Nisan's like in March. It's in March, March not March 1st, but it's Nisan 1, 444 BCE. We know what's happening that day in scripture. Nehemiah is being written. And Nehemiah chapter 2 is happening on that day in scripture. That's crazy. So let's take a look and see what happens in Nehemiah chapter 2. Verse 1, I'll put it on the screen for you. You don't have to jump all over the place. Verse verse 1, Nehemiah chapter 2. In the month of Nisan. Now, when they say in the month of Nisan and not a date, it means the first. Right? Otherwise, they'd give you the date. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought before him, I took the wine and I gave it to the king. This is Nehemiah. So we can go back through history and see that the 20th year of King Artaxerxes is 444 B.C. Look at what happens. So the king, I gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city, talking about Jerusalem, where my fathers are buried, lies in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire? I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Oh, I jumped ahead there. I doubled up. Then the king said to me, what is it that you want? Verse four. Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, If it pleases the king and if your servant has had favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Listen to this. Then the king with the queen sitting behind him asked me, how long will your journey take? When will you get back? If it please the king to send me. So I set a time and I said, if it pleases the king, may I have letters? Would you issue a decree? Would you write letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah? And may I have a letter to Esau, keeper of the king's forest, so he'll give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, so the temple or the city will reside uh, that in the wall will resi- residence will I occupy. And because he was gracious, the hand of my God was upon me. The king granted my request, so I went to the governors of the trans-Euphrates, and I gave them the king's... Letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. That happens. He gets a decree to go back and start building Jerusalem. Exactly 173,880 days later. Look at what day it is. It's AD 33, Nisan 10. From that moment in time, exactly the day that Daniel prophesied, Jesus is coming into town, and he's riding on a colt. And he's doing exactly what Zephaniah said he was going to do. He's doing exactly what uh, uh, David said he was going to do in Psalm 118, a thousand years before. It's the exact moment. Look at John chapter 12 one more time, verse 16. It says, at first, his disciples did not understand all this. They didn't put it together. They haven't been doing the math. They haven't been tracking. And you're thinking, how could they not be doing the math? Well, I don't know. They weren't doing the math when he was born, right? What happens to us, church folks? We believe something for a long time, but we start, we start just doing it out of routine, They're going through the motions. Their faith has become routine and they're celebrating and they haven't been doing the math. And at first, his disciples didn't understand all this. At first, Pastor Mike didn't understand all this. Hopefully, you're starting to understand some of this. And it was only after Jesus was glorified that they realized that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. (laughs) I was reading this over and over again and I got emotional. Just recognizing the creative energy of God. That all throughout history, it's like he was painting on one canvas layer after layer. It's like this song, Hosanna, was building up in the earth. And it's pretty funny. One of the, uh, one of the accounts of him coming in and, and uh, they're waving the branches and they're singing Hosanna right? And Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are like, tell these people to stop singing Hosanna to you. They can sing it, but they can't sing it to you. And Jesus says something. Maybe you've heard this before. He goes, if they don't sing it, the rocks are going to cry out. Why are the rocks going to cry out? Because this is the day. From the moment that God started the plan, This is the day that the world was waiting for. The earth was groaning. And Jesus says, if these guys don't do their job, if they don't wave the branches, if they don't lift their voices, if they don't sing Hosanna, the rocks are gonna cry out. You're missing it. I'm weeping over the city because you weren't paying attention that this was the day. The Savior was coming and he wasn't on a horse. He was on a donkey. He was coming to bring peace. This is the day. So, God, this creative designer who's been filling all of history with beauty and intentionality, almost like a song being composed. And the problem is he's laying down track by track and some people are getting pieces of it, but some are missing and the city wasn't paying attention, but it was the moment when this had to happen. And if you look at the timeline again, it's like this. It's almost like in 1528 BC, he lays the foundation. You feel that? And he begins to express to the world his plan. And Exodus chapter 12 happens, and there's this incredible picture of the power of the Lamb that was slain to guard the people of God from the consequences of sin and death. The foundation is laid. And then time moves on. And we fast forward and Psalm 118 gets written and it's like the timing of God begins to come into play. Can you feel it? Hundreds and hundreds of years have gone by and the pieces are falling into place and the rocks are ready because if we don't do it, the rocks are gonna do it. Everything is tensed up. And suddenly it's like God brings in the momentum. Daniel chapter nine, the word of God tells us there's a plan, there's an anointed one. You've been singing. Here comes the timing. Do you feel it, world? Do you feel it, people of God? The timing of God. It's moving us forward. And we don't know when it's going to start. So we're all tense. We're feeling it. It's coming. The timing of God. And then suddenly, 444 BCE, we begin to, the the notes come into focus. Things become clear. Mm -hmm. Nehemiah begins to timeline. And it starts the clock. The clock. And it's like God's been painting layers and layers and the song is just weaving through history and hundreds of years have gone by and Jesus shows up on the earth and he's walking from town to town, he's healing, he's raising the dead, he's teaching and they want to make him king but he's like, today's not that day. Do you hear the rhythm of what God's doing? Because today's not that day. You can't make me king today. It's not the plan. See, God has a plan. After three years of ministering, reaching people, blessing people, Lazarus is raised from the dead. He comes to the Mount of Olives and he sees the city. And they're singing Psalm 118. This is the day that the Lord has made. And he gets on the colt. And he's watching the time he's seeing the song the ebbs and flows rising and now it's been exactly a hundred and seventy three thousand eight hundred and eighty days later and jesus is on a donkey and he's the prince of peace and they scream out at the top of their lungs Jesus comes on the scene because this is the day. They try to stop the people from saying it, and Jesus says, uh uh. If they don't say it, the rocks are going to cry out because all of the creation's been waiting for this day, this moment. Why? Because God, who is in control, who has a plan, and has a purpose, and has a timing. listen I was floored by the incredible timing of God as I dove into this I just, I've just i only peeled a few layers back for you we didn't even get to Zechariah we didn't talk about the hundreds of other prophecies that were all happening simultaneously as Jesus was walking through these moments but for some of you I really sense in this moment the thing God's trying to confirm in you is just this he's got a plan He's got a timing, he's in control. Maybe you felt like he's been quiet for a season and you've been frustrated. Maybe you feel like the things you're going through right now don't seem to line up with any sense of timing and control. Listen, sometimes there was 400 years of quiet between the next piece and the next notes coming through. And I'm sure there was some frustration. As a matter of fact, there was so much frustration that they quit doing the math, paying attention to what day it was and how important this moment was going to be. So my word of encouragement for you is this. Don't give up. Don't get frustrated. Don't forget that God, who says he has a plan for your life, has a plan for your life. And some of these pieces of what looks like maybe difficult seasons are just the next layer. Come on now of the song coming in. And God's building towards a crescendo. He's putting rhythm into your life and pieces into your life. And there's still hope. There's still a plan. There's still a purpose because he's still God. Now, some of you, going to get uncomfortable at this point, but I'm just going to want you to catch this. I just gave you a few examples. These were ordinary people who God moved through to accomplish his incredible plan for all of humanity. Moses was like, I'm not a good speaker. No one's gonna listen to me. And God's like, who made your mouth? Right? Daniel was getting up in years and he was angry and frustrated because he was getting a picture that wasn't the preferable future. He thought he was done at the end of his road that God was going to restore things, but there was still more things to come. Nehemiah was scared to death to ask the king for what he needed to ask him. He literally says, I prayed to God for strength before I went and asked him, because I was afraid of what might happen if I asked the king for something. Lazarus was dead. And God was like, get up. You're not done yet. So if Lazarus can be dead, you can be wherever you're at. And God can be saying, I need you. You have an opportunity. Come on now to play a part. And here's where this is going. Some of you may not realize that you have a part to play in this incredible, just symphony of what God's doing here on the earth and you may not even know this week might be the week where you play a part in someone else's hearing of the song of what God's doing and it might be something as simple as God puts someone in your path or in your life and this next week coming up is Easter and you just say something like hey do you have plans for Easter now listen We made these little cards. They're super bright, so you can't miss them. I thought about putting one in everybody's hands, and I thought that's too easy for you. So they're at the coffee counter as you walk out, and here's what I want to, here's my here's my takeaway challenge for you, okay? Some of you wondering what God's plan is, I want to know if you can be listening this week for the rhythm of what God's doing and looking for an opportunity to just ask somebody, hey, do you have plans this Easter? Do you want to come with me? Would you be open to coming and and doing that? And, and, And you just step into the symphony of what God's doing. Now, listen, there was times where it was just a spot and the answer was a long ways off. But maybe you get to play just some kind of a small role. So I'm going to challenge you as you walk out the door, stop by the coffee spot, just grab one. You can't miss them. They're like bright. They pop, right? You grab one of these and you're just going to say, hey, you know what? I might just play And some of you are like, you don't understand. I don't even know how this thing works. Just grab your cowbell. Be like, this is the day, uh, right? I don't care if you got rhythm. I don't care if you think you can hear it or you're not sure you can hear it. Just walk into the symphony of what God's doing and the beauty of it. And just invite someone and see what God does. He'll do the rest. He'll do the rest if they show up or don't show up. That's not on you. You just get to play your part and do your piece. So Jesus... Thank you for that day. Thank you for causing some sense to come from what seems like so many random elements that you're actually in control. Got a plan that was 1,500 years and change in the making, just as we looked at today, that you would come in just that exact moment for each and every one of us not as the conquering king, but as the prince of peace, the mighty God, that you would come for us, knowing the events of the week and how things would unfold. You came in at just the right moment, at just the right time for each and every one of us. And God, we pray for those people out there that we know, that we love, that we interact with, that it might just be just the right time for them. And just pray, God, you'd open hearts, open minds, and give us courage to walk into the song. We love you. We thank you. We welcome you. In Jesus' name. And the whole church said, Amen, 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 and Amen. Would you give the Lord a hand? He's good.